listening to the Top Music Guitar Podcast, the show for guitar teachers to learn about the craft of teaching great guitar lessons that students love. If you're looking to start or expand your studio and make guitar teaching your full-time dream job, you've come to the right place. Each week, you'll get to hear from some of the top guitar teachers from around the globe and get their best tips and experiences so you too can build your own dream studio. I'm your host, Michael, and I've founded one of the top guitar schools in Australia, written a best-selling curriculum, and I mentor guitar teachers. I'm excited to share my expertise with you and the wisdom of all the experts we interview. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Top Music Guitar Teaching Podcast. I've always got a real treat for you guys, our listeners, but today is even more so as we have someone with a bit of celebrity about them today. So let's welcome Rob Mills, former guitarist for Diamond Head, to the podcast. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. No, no worries, Michael. Thank you very much. Yeah, just a just a teensy weensy bit of celebrity, you know, not not that much, but you know, uh, it's 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 always an honour to say that I was uh, the guitar player in 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 the in the band that was basically Metallica, Metallica's biggest influence for sure, and one of Megadeth's biggest influences. So yeah, it's it's always nice to say that. That's really, really awesome. And I definitely want to ask you a bit more about Diamond Head, but for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you give us a brief background first about your guitar playing and, of course, the band and all those kind of things, and then how you sort of transitioned into guitar teaching? So, yeah, I mean, I started playing when I was about 14 years old. Um, just like uh, I I was in, you know, secondary school, as it was, and I was – I was just like listening to like all the crap in the charts really and getting into that as a, as a teenager, getting into music. And, and then I had a couple of like friends that were into rock and they were saying, you should listen to rock. And first of all, I was like, nah, they just scream, you know, and it's all like screaming and stuff like that. I don't really like that. But then I started listening, you know, obviously one of them probably gave me an Iron Maiden cassette or something and I just kind of forced me into listening to it. And then I heard they used to bring like the little ghetto blaster into school and I thought I started coming around to it. I was like, yeah, that's actually quite cool, you know. And then it was around the time, you know, when I was 14, was around the time that Appetite for Destruction just blew up in England. So we were listening to that. Of course, you got all those classic tracks. And, like, one night I was uh, watching TV. It used to be known as the, uh, well, I think the show was called Heavy Metal Heaven. It used to be on at, like, 1 a.m. or something. So you'd sort of, like, you know, stay awake on a school night and just, sort of be watching TV with the, the volume turned down, hoping your parents wouldn't hear you to sort of say, you know, get to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I was watching that, and, and it was the Guns N' Roses, like their infamous sort of show at the Ritz in uh, LA, I think it was. And uh, it was just like Slash playing Sweet Child of Mine and all those other tracks. But it's mainly Sweet Child of Mine that just made me go, whoa, that's, you know, I want to be, I want to do that, you know what I mean? I'm just looking at that guy doing that, standing up looking cool with his hat on and just playing that guitar so that was like you know my first sort of like um, falling in love with the guitar and then I just uh, said to my mom you know what you know usually like you get your Christmas presents and you get like your, your one big Christmas present and that year my one big Christmas present was I want a guitar so yeah <laughs> fantastic I think that's such a great story and it probably resonates with many of us um, I've definitely heard of that show and, and read similar stories of other famous guitar players uh, uh, staying up late to watch that show and also being inspired by Slash. And there's not too many guitar players who were cool than Slash back in the uh, early 80s and even 
right up to today. So you got your guitar for Christmas. What happens next? Uh, well, I started, pr- pr- I mean, the first, the, the first memory I have is opening my guitar on Christmas Day and because I've probably watched Slash playing that track like a few times by now on, on the video, just watching it. And, and, and I just picked up the guitar and sort of put my, I remember putting my hands down in that sort of 12 fret area and I put my hands in like this diagonal chord shape. And I just thought, well, that's, that's what he's playing. And I just started picking the notes. And I was going to my brother, look, look, I'm playing sweet child of mine. Whoa, whoa. Like really just like having this kind of like uh, amazement. But like, I wasn't playing it. But, I, you know, <laughs> it was just that, it's just that thing of like that visualization thing of like wanting to do it so badly. Uh, so, yeah. And then, you know, I got some lessons. Um, uh, I had lessons for a few months with this, this one sort of teacher that was also a school teacher. And he took me and taught me some some cool things. And then after a certain time, he said, well, I've, I've taken you as far as I can, but maybe you need to find uh, another teacher now. And I think I sort of stopped having lessons for a little while then, but I was just so feverishly into it that I was trying to get all of the information that I could. I used to be able to get this magazine called Guitar for the Practicing Musician, which isn't around anymore, but it was around in the 90s and uh, the late 80s and, and sort of like, I think it went for about 10 or 11 years. And it used to have like, like say, five song transcriptions every month from, you know, anything from like Alice in Chains to Nirvana to Guns N' Roses. And they were really good transcriptions. And then there'd be some columns in the back of the magazine from, you know, like Joe Satriani or whatever, or Steve Vai, uh, just having like guitar lessons. So I'd buy that religiously every month. I'd be sort of like looking for books and stuff on, uh, there's a great book that I came across called the Guitar Handbook by Ralph Denyer that I always recommend to my students now. So all that information, I was just feverishly going, yeah, you know, I'm a teenager with loads of energy and I just want to sort of like do this thing, you know, because when they say to you, what do you want to be when they grow up? Well, initially I wanted to be a goalkeeper. I was very into like football, but then, you know, I perhaps wasn't tall enough to be a goalkeeper and all this kind of thing. People kept telling me so. Like the, the, the guitar sort of replaced that and I was like, this is what I want to do. You know, I don't want to get a normal job. I want to be a guitar player in a rock and roll band. That's absolutely awesome. I can still hear the passion and excitement you've got uh, for guitar, (laughs) which obviously you had back then. And something you said interesting was, you know, you kind of knew what it was. It's almost like you had this itch or this desire to become as good as Slash and who your guitar heroes were. And that's something I've noticed with almost every student I've had. When they walk in the room with that energy saying, hey, this is what I want to do. How do I get there? Those guys always make it as opposed to the people that come in and go, oh, I'd like to try guitar. I've always wanted to learn and I just want to see how it goes. So those guys are, you know, they haven't made that mental commitment or they haven't adapted those behaviours there. So uh, very, very cool stories that you shared with us so far. So you've taken lessons and, and yeah, obviously getting straight to the bat, you've ended up playing in Diamond Head. So what sort of happened beyond your teenage years and into adult life in terms of going from someone learning guitar to actually playing and becoming a gigging musician? I mean, when I was about, when I was, I, went, I ended up going to music college in my hometown. I had a, a music college uh, thing going on there. Uh, when I was about, you know, I left, I left um, school, no desire really to get a proper job. Um, you know, you, you got your parents pushing you to do that, but I was like, no, I want to be a guitarist. So I literally, when I left school, I had all that time on my hands. That was when I got into like the Steve Vai sort of ten-hour-a-day practice routine, where he says, you know. Uh, if you want to be a great guitarist, then you've got to do some, what they call it, they call it woodshedding in uh, American sort of slang. 
so I did that for for a while. I, I don't know how long I was doing that for, but practicing like at least like five, six, seven, eight, even ten hours a day for like a prolonged period. So that really helped uh, to sort of like hone my uh, you know my dexterity and my technique and all those other things. And then when I was about eighteen, uh, the opportunity uh, came to go to go to music college. It's not like anything like Berkeley or anything like that in the States, you know what I mean? But it's still it's still pretty cool to actually go to a college where you're just doing what you love and hopefully you get like a thing at the end of it called the BTEC National Diploma. And uh, so that was, uh, was amazing to do that. And during that time, I formed a band with a guy called Ray Loverock, who that's, that's actually his real name. And uh, he was this super talented guy that sort of like played like, well, when we first started off, he was playing drums and singing, and we would play like Hendrix covers and stuff like that. We had this guy on the bass called Weaver, and we just used to go out and do a few gigs locally. And I remember the one time we did this gig in a local pub with a band called uh, Voodoo Sue, and Voodoo Sue uh, was basically the brother of uh, Rob Halford from Judas Priest. His name's Nigel, and he was uh, the drummer in this band. And and everyone was sort of like raving about this band or they got a record deal or something like that. And then we supported them. And then after this gig, like people were coming up to us and going, hey, you you, you blew those guys off the stage, man. You, you're way better than that band. And we were like, you know, we were like these fucking eight-year-old kids. Just, okay, cool. That's amazing. You know what I mean? Just, uh, so we were getting like great feedback. Unfortunately, I, I ended up with uh, tendonitis. So I don't know whether I was over-practicing at that point or you know, where those racking off a bit too much. Just... <laughs> a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. <laughs> <laughs> but something was happening and it wasn't working out. Like when I was playing guitar, I got to a point where it was getting painful and people were saying, maybe it's, you've got something psychosomatic going on, which is a new thing I've never heard of. Maybe something happened in your childhood that you're not addressing. So, I don't know. Maybe you're not warming up properly in the cold winter mornings or something. But I, the culmination of that was that I ended up stopping playing for six months because that's what I'd read up about it. And people were saying, you know, the, the best way is just to stop playing so you can give you, your muscles and everything sort of time to, to, to recover. So I did that. And the, and the guy, Ray Lovrock, uh, was, was going, yeah, like, you know, well, I, I can't. This guy was really driven, like, you know, really sort of like, you know, career focused on being a musician and being in a, a famous band and all that. So he said, well, I, I can't hang around for you. I'm going to carry on with another band. Obviously, I was gutted. And then he formed this band called North Star. And, <laughs> and they ended up getting a record deal with Geffen Records, which is the the, the, band, the record label that Guns N' Roses was signed to. And they ended up going to Los Angeles and recording an album. So I was like, when that happened, I was like, wow, that was a that was a kick in the balls. Like, you know what I mean? To sort of like miss out on that. But it was through Ray that I actually got the Diamond Head gig because it, this was a couple of years, maybe four or five years after that, that um, he was in another band by then because the record deal that they had, they ended up getting their arm and got, got fired and, and they ended up losing uh, the record deal. So nothing came of it anyway, really. And then he was in another band and the guitar player in that band was actually from Stowbridge, where Diamond Head are from in England. And he was he was sort of like depping. He, he wasn't like I don't think he was like a fully fledged band member, but he was helping them out. And then Diamond had this gig coming to play at Wacken Open Air, which is basically the biggest sort of rock festival in the world. 
on the same day, this band, uh, I think they were called Spider Simpson, they had a uh, record company showcase where, you know, the record execs turn up to watch the band in, you know, the poss- with the possibility of them signing the band. So he was, like, really committed to the band. So he had to sort of, like, say to Diamond Head, well, it's just unfortunate that it's on exactly the same day, but I, c- I cannot do this gig for you. Uh, so Floyd was in the band with Ray at the time. He said, well, who else, who else can do this gig? And Ray said, well, you know, Millsy. That was, you know, it's my nickname back in the day, Millsy. Millsy's a real fast learner because this gig on Wacken Festival was in like 10 days' time. And there was 10 songs that they had to play. Like, who's a fast learner? And I was a really fast learner because of my, you know, dedicatedness and my whole sort of like uh, just uh, feverishness about everything being meticulous, about guitar learning, all the scales, learning all the theory and everything that I've learned over the years. So, Learning those songs was actually just like a, a bit of a walk in the park, even even in ten days. So, so they, yeah, I got the call basically to to, to do the to do the Dinahead gig at Wacken, and then um, after the gig, they said, "Well, you know, this guy's let us down. Do do you want to be do you want to be in the band?" And I was like, oh, "Yeah, sure, <laughs> why not?" <laughs> so yeah, there you go. There we go. Awesome. And uh, were you in the right place at the right time, or had you just? worked your ass off to get to that point where you could take advantage of the opportunity when it came along. What's your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I think, yeah, just because of my reputation uh, with these guys, you know, that, that, that you sort of like musical family, you know, the guys that you get to get to meet along the way that, that are also as, as committed and dedicated to you as, as musicians, uh, they're your peers. And then once, once you show yourself to be, you know, a, a great guitarist or a great bass player or drummer, whatever it is, and you've got a good attitude and they know that you can do what, what you say on the tin, then, uh, you know, those opportunities will definitely come. Uh, you've got to be, you just got to be like, let's say you've got, you've got to be on the pitch to score a goal. So if you, if you're putting yourself out there and, uh, you know, you're doing all these other things in, in, in other bands, then at some point you are going to get, you're going to get an opportunity, right? So, I, I mean, I had another opportunity where, see, the band that uh, after the band uh, North Star that I told you about earlier disbanded, then Ray put together another band, which was actually called Love Rock. And this was in the sort of very late 90s, early 2000s. This was before I got the Diamond Head gig, but it was an original band. And we treated it like a job and we'd go, we'd, we'd have a rehearsal space and we'd go in every day during the week for sort of like most of the hours of the day honing our material and stuff like that and uh so you know we got to a point where we were sort of decent band but nothing actually eventually came of it now i forgot the original point of why i went into that now what was the question again <laughs> something about being prepared and uh uh ready for the opportunities when they come along well that was that was another instance where yeah so uh in that band there's a guy a drummer called car brazil who's like an amazing drummer. He's now, he went on to really amazing things. He plays with like James Blunt and Robbie Williams. And he's, he's just like a bit of a session drummer extraordinaire. Like if you're listening to Radio 1 in England, which is like one of the most popular radio stations for an hour, he's probably played on four or five of the songs in that hour because he's just like this, this amazing session drummer. And he actually got me an uh, audition Back in the day, but this is probably 2001, 2002. This was probably a year or so before I, I joined Diamond Head. 
he got me into audition with this band called Speedway, who had this female singer. And uh, I went down to London and I did the audition and I had the, the beard like I've got now. And they called me up a day after said, well, we might want you to get rid of the beard because, you know, make, we want you to look as young as possible. Uh, I mean, I was only like 27 at the time anyway, something like that. But I was so set in my way of wanting to be in like a sort of like a rock kind of band. You know what I mean? That like this band was more like sort of like pop. And they had a female singer, and I was just like, at the time, I was like, I'm not sure if I really want to do this. Now, looking back, it would have been a foot in the door. At the time, I didn't see it like that. And, I, you know, so now I look back, it's not like a regret, but it's like, oh, we should have just like got with that band. And then, but I, I didn't have the wisdom at the time. So it's one of those in instances where you look back and you think, ah, that could have been something, you know, but I didn't do it. And the other, the other factor was that I was madly in love with this girl at the time. And sort of like we were, uh, yeah, that was just like something that, that sort of like uh, made me not walk down that path, but I carried on on that path. And so I always look back and go, yeah, I could have been the foot in, in the door to the music business and probably I would have like made a different sort of music career choice. But who knows what would have happened? Because I heard that that band, though they got signed, they also would, they had a song, one song that was in the charts uh, and, and then they flopped after that. Like, so, but as it happens, about a year or so later is when I got the Diamond Head call. And it's like, yeah, this is more like a band that I want to be in. But ultimately, probably didn't sort of pay as much as maybe what you would have got paid in a, in a sort of like, a, you know, a commercial band, right? So I think a commercial pop band. So, yeah. Yeah, we can always look back and go, maybe we dodged a bullet because it flopped. Or maybe had you been the member, it might have actually taken off with your contributions. But, you'll, you know, you'll never know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but it's yeah, it's just um, it's just fascinating to look back and think. Well, did I take? Did I make the right turn or wrong turn? But at the end of the day, you know, you you, went, you are where you are. I mean, the Diamond Head thing was amazing. You know, it's like we did some the first gig, as I say, we played whacking uh, in front of like I don't know how many probably fifty thousand people or something like that. And we ended up first gig. <laughs> yeah, I went from sort of playing pubs in front of fifty people to playing in front of fifty thousand people for that one, and uh, did a. A 22 day European tour supporting Megadeth. That was amazing as well. We, we actually had the two bus for that. So I got to meet Dave Mustaine. And, you know, unfortunately, Marty Friedman wasn't on that tour because he was my favorite guitarist in Megadeth. But uh, it was still amazing, obviously. Um, there was a real nice moment. We, we'd only done five or six shows and we were just about, we were done like Ireland, Scotland, and England. And we had two last shows in the London Astoria, which is quite a famous venue before we were going over to like Belgium and, you know, Germany and all that. Uh, we were sitting in the dressing room sort of about 30 minutes before showtime and one of their sort of roadie guys came in with a big bottle of champagne and a little note and it said like, hey, we, we love having you guys on tour, you know, you're great, you're great guys, you're a great band and we're looking forward to the rest of the tour and it was just signed from, you know, from Dave and the boys and we're like, wow, that's, that's a nice touch, you know, so. Yeah, there's cool, cool stuff like that that happens, and uh, just like this, that's the stuff that you remember, you know. So uh, some crazy stuff that happened as well. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Good memories you'll have forever. And many of our listeners are obviously guitar teachers, but a lot of them are also active musicians or aspiring musicians who are doing teaching on the side of their music career or music on the side of their teaching. What advice or tips would you have to those guys who? you know, still want to make something of their music career uh, and are not quite sure how to get their foot in the door there? Well, um, 
the opportunities will come if you are knocking on the door, I think. You know, I mean, it's, it's never as straightforward as we'd like it to be. But, I mean, uh, like you said before, when my, my opportunity uh, with Diamond Head came, you could say it was fortuitous, but I was there and I was in this guy's uh, raised mind when he was asked who can – so I would say, like, you know, be as, like um, – prepared as you can be in terms of like you know your image and stuff your image obviously counts doesn't it these days uh look after yourself you know make sure that you sort of like you like i think one of the reasons i got the job as i said before was because i i I am a fast learner so and that's only because i've studied all the ins and outs of theory and everything like that so sure most of your listeners are probably you know along those lines anyway and if you if you teach guitar then you generally you're gonna know most of the uh, the ins and outs of like theory and stuff like that. So that if you do get that opportunity and somebody needs you to turn something around a quick notice, then you're probably going to be able to do it. Um, but yeah, it's um, there's no secret formula, is there? It's just hard work, uh, hard work, good attitude. You know, easy going, be easy going, um, stuff like that. Because one of the reasons I think that Carl Brazil. The drummer I was talking about, the session guy, does amazingly well. Is because he's just such such a, you know, is a, a a great guy to be around. One of the memories I have him back at college was when he's playing drums, he'd always be smiling. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. So if you if you've got that sort of like a, that happy vibe, because people, yeah, if you're on a tour bus or if you're working with somebody all the time, then you you want to be around people that are that are, you know that have got good energy right so if you if you kind of like moping around and you you're a, you're a bit of an arsehole, <laughs> you might not get the gig yeah and you know they're the answers that people might not necessarily want to hear because there's no shortcuts or easy easy ways but it's the hard truths that they need to hear to to be organized to be prepared to have a great attitude so that when the opportunity does come or when someone opens one of the doors you knocked on you they're ready to go yeah, um, and as I say, when I look back at my, well, I call now, it could have been a missed opportunity in terms of that that bank or speedway. I don't know. I just don't think I was in a in a, in a right in a good point in my life anyway. In terms of like, uh, you know, my, my, within myself, I wasn't in a great place. Uh, I was probably doing a little bit too too too, too much um, uh, recreational um, substances. So. You know, that probably wasn't a good thing from that point of view. He's a young guy, just uh, experimenting and stuff like that. So, but obviously, I think a lot of people maybe go through that in their, in their early years, in their 20s and stuff like that. But, you know, I still managed to, uh, to, to make things happen. So, yeah, I don't know. There is no shortcut. Just work hard and, you know, your efforts will, will be rewarded. You definitely get somewhere if you've got that ethic, that work ethic. Yeah, I don't know what else to say really on that. <laughs> we don't always necessarily need to say more. Uh, so that's a, a, obviously a fantastic chapter of your life. And onto the more recent chapters, uh, you've sort of adopted the digital nomad lifestyle. So for our listeners, digital nomad is sort of you're not stuck in any one fixed location. I know many of us come COVID, we're told by our governments that we couldn't teach, we couldn't work, especially here in Australia, the world's most locked down city. Um, we literally couldn't teach for about 11 months of uh, the 12 month cycle and 18 months within a two year period, we were locked down and couldn't actually work. So had I had set myself up as a digital nomad to teach online from anywhere in the world, I would have been totally 
safe and you know not dependent on any government or or any laws or rules or things like that so Rob, why don't you just tell us about your transition into the digital nomad lifestyle, what it means to you and how you've sort of gone about setting it up? Okay, yeah. So just quickly, uh, Australia, I think what you just said, that's uh, that's why sometimes it gets called Australia. <laughs> 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 yeah, they did go a bit crazy, didn't they, in, uh, in Australia and, and other countries as well. That's why I ended up going to Mexico. Um, so my, my digital nomad sort of journey, if you like, began I, I just decided to sell everything and leave England and come to Vietnam in December 2019, which was literally like a month or two before the whole sort of COVID thing started sort of trickling down. And then it went really crazy didn't it, in the March of 2022. So I was in Saigon having sold all, you know, uh, all my stuff, uh, you know, and just with this vision of traveling, I didn't realize I was going to do a digital nomad thing then it was probably like a loose idea in the back of my mind but uh i knew that uh, i had some friends in saigon and they said well we can get you some gigs like just doing like acoustic covers and stuff like that so at least you're making a bit of money um and then covid happened obviously and so i waited it out in, in vietnam for a little while and then realized the situation wasn't getting better so i'd always wanted to go to mexico and when i looked into it Mexico had this really sort of relaxed thing about COVID. Most of the other places want to have the PCR test, right? And they want you to do this and do that. And Mexico was like, no, just a temperature check. And, and as a British passport holder, you get a six-month stamp on your passport. So I was like, okay, okay, let's go to Mexico. <laughs> and I went to Mexico. I had a great time. I was there for about 18 months. And it was during that time that I started going, okay, if I, if I want to stay on this journey, then i got to, you know, uh, do something other than just doing a few gigs, to, to obviously to, to to make money to to live and stuff like that. So that's when I started the idea. I've taught like years ago, like face to face, perhaps before I, I was in Diamond Head and stuff like that. Um, so I got to this, I came to this idea. Well, yeah, I mean, and and a lot of people were doing it anyway during COVID. You know, sort of like more and more people teaching online so i thought well, why don't i just yeah why don't i just teach guitar online i can do it from anywhere in the world as long as there's a great internet connection which most places have now there was a couple of places that i was told in mexico that didn't quite have that so i avoided those places but so yeah i just started you know going from there and thought well if i can just build it up and uh, that means that i can just stay traveling uh, <laughs> yeah it just seemed like a great idea at the time that's awesome. So were you teaching locally from wherever you were in addition to some online lessons or what was the, the sort of income there? It was basically, well, see, when I was in Mexico, for instance, there, there was hardly, even though they had this relaxed stance on COVID, uh, there wasn't a lot of tourists there because they were probably locked down in their own countries. So the, from the geeks' point of view, you know, there wasn't anything going on. Uh I wasn't actually, you know, even though I do sort of like offer to teach locally, I mean, a lot of the time you're not going to get the same kind of rates anyway as, as, as a, you know, as you do online. So I was just focusing on the online, just thinking, well, if I can teach people in like in England, you know, in America, these kind of places, uh, you know, then I, I go by the, uh, the musicians union rate in England. So, yeah, I just tried to focus on that and. I still do like even like I'm here back in Chiang Mai now and I, I've just booked I've only been back here a day or two and I've just booked three gigs already so 
but that the, the money you get for that is not amazing but it's just it's just fun to go out and do a few gigs you know uh it keeps you uh sane <laughs> uh but yeah so the uh the online teaching is where like you know you can obviously you can make some decent money and uh and you you, you get the um the satisfaction that knowing that you know you are you doing something that you love because i thought about teaching english uh, i even took the course to the tefl course or whatever to teach english and when i finished the course i was like i don't really, i don't really want to teach english uh i i I'd, I'd love to teach guitar because i know exactly what i'm doing uh you know i i've been playing for like 34 years now i've been teaching for most of that i know everything inside out right so and and i've got a passion for a guitar and uh you know i've been i've been through that process like you know so you have that thing where you, you think well you have like more of a uh it's not even the word passion it's just like you know you have this impetus like you know that you can transfer and hopefully you can really help someone to shine on the guitar so from that point of view it's a, it's a very sort of satisfactory you get like job satisfaction or something people say so yeah it's nice So we're halfway through today's episode, but before we dive back into our discussion, let's take a moment to talk about the Top Music Guitar Teachers membership. Now, this isn't just another course or another run-of-the-mill membership. It's a game changer for guitar teachers just like you. Imagine having a supportive community of like-minded professionals, mentorship from industry experts, and a wealth of resources and teaching tips at your fingertips. Our membership empowers you to grow your teaching skills and build a thriving guitar teaching business around whatever you want to do, whether that's online, offline, building courses, creating awesome products, whatever you want to do. Join us today for only $49 per month and unlock your full potential as a guitar teacher. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, that's awesome. And in terms of, obviously, the fear and uncertainty, because I coach guitar teachers and uh, many of them go, when do I quit my day job and uh transition into just teaching and things like that. And there's obviously a lot of uncertainty and anxiety around that. But to do that on top of moving to a whole different country and starting life over, that's a whole other level in perception for me. So what were you <laughs> feeling and, and how did you overcome that uncertainty around that? Well, you see, I just I just jumped into the deep end anyway without realizing it because I left England and I just thought, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a few gigs I'll see what happens. There wasn't a really like a plan. And, 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 and the teaching thing just kind of happened organically because of the situation. But I didn't realize when I left England that, it's, that COVID was going to happen. I mean, obviously, nobody knew that COVID was going to happen. But for that to happen at the timing that I left, that was like, whoa, that was really was in the deep end. So you're just going, well, you know, I'm in these countries where it's relatively cheap to live. So as long as I'm careful, obviously, it's different for somebody in a country like Australia or England or America or Canada, I guess, where, you know, the cost of living is uh, quite expensive, right? So if my, 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 my advice would be to anybody that wants to do the digital nomad, it's like, you know, yeah, you can, if you save up like, uh, you only need, maybe need to save up like four or five grand, really, perhaps not even that, but it'd be nice to have as a buffer. Uh, if you had like already had like, you know, a certain amount of students, like, you know, five to ten students that you've got some income coming up because 
I'll tell you what, I, I just got back to Chiang Mai. I, I'm in this apartment block. It's, I've, it's not like, a, it's not the Ritz or anything like that, but it's still amazing and beautiful. And it's still right in the middle of town. So the cost for my apartment block here, which has got air conditioning and a fan and, and the motorcycle, total cost for one month for this apartment and a motorcycle is about uh, 6,500 baht. Now, uh, if I put that into uh, terms of, you know, English money or say, let's say US dollar. So 6,500 baht is about 160 quid or 200 US dollars a month. Isn't that insane? That is insane. I just brought up 285 Australian dollars. So that's literally most of my students are paying me <laughs> between 200 yeah. and, and 400 dollars a month. So that's like one student covers my whole, yeah. would you say, house and, and transport for a whole month? Yeah, I mean, this. I, I'm just in an apartment, but a house is probably not much uh, more expensive than that. Uh, you know, you can get, like, you know, great deals on those kind of things. Probably You could probably get a house with a swimming pool and all that kind of thing. Maybe even if you if you just say, let's say, double what I've just said or treble it, it's still not a crazy amount And if you want to live like that. So uh, I just prefer to be in this place. There's, like, uh, there's a little community here where I am and stuff like that. It's like an expat community, so it's a good little area. But, yes, that's, uh, that, I mean, think about it. If you just – you could live like a king here for, like, uh, you know, not a lot of money, uh, and that's why a lot of people come to Thailand. But you just have to – then you have to think about the visa thing. If you're here in Thailand, you can get what's called an education visa, which means you can stay here for, like, a year, and you pay – I think it's around 50000 now, which is about – a thousand pounds in England, or you know, twelve, thirteen hundred dollars, I guess, something like that, US. Uh, so you can do like you can learn Thai language, or you can do like a a Muay Thai, like a martial arts. Uh, <laughs> edu- that was going to be my, my next question: is if it includes Muay Thai, I might have to buy myself a ticket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. You can do that, uh, or, or other kinds of like kung fu or whatever. I think you know you can do that. But I haven't. I haven't actually done that. I've been just been sort of doing it. Uh, I got here this time last year. Um, you can get here for thirty days, and then you can renew locally in the office for another thirty days, and then you can do a border run uh, in Thailand. Uh, you're allowed to do two land border runs per calendar year. Uh, you can come in six times via air. So. I think they probably will get a little bit if you if you're doing it all the time they might go hey what's going on here but like as I say you know it's not a lot to actually get the education visa but I, I don't want to be tied down to one country so I like I just got back from Vietnam I, I might be going to Bali in in a few weeks time I've got a, a guy over there telling me I can get some really well paid gigs so uh, and I haven't been yet so yeah it's just like keep i'm keeping my options open not sort of tie myself down and that's the beautiful thing about being a digital nomad is like yeah i I just you know click your fingers and go i want to go here now i want to go there now and you know that you can do it absolutely amazing and how do you go about obviously one organizing shows and two finding students online because that's obviously going to be a challenge for people and whenever i've helped people build an online business um I've always found it's a lot harder to um, 
get students. I've never found it hard to get students for myself online, but trying to coach someone else to get online students has always been tricky for me. So what are your sort of thoughts on how to get gigs and, of course, how to get students? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, how to get gigs, you know, I just like um, – I've got a couple of great music videos that I made when I was in Mexico, actually. And uh, so I'll just literally go to one of the bars and ask them, uh, you know, if, if I know they've got live music and then I get, get their number, send them my video, and then usually, obviously, you go and play for them and usually get repeat gigs if you're good enough. Um, I mean, I, as I say, I just got back here a day or two ago and three of the places that I played last time I was here have just said, yeah, yeah, we want you tomorrow, we want you Tuesday. So you know, obviously you make a good impression and then you know you can always come back to a place and you just walk into the gigs because I've already been here before a couple of times and i played gigs at these places. So that's a beautiful thing because then you go, hold on a sec. So I could just go, I can go to Vietnam as I just did. I went to Da Nang and I, and I made some alliances then. I did gigs at places. So I know now uh, you keep the contacts, right? And then... When you, when you know you're going to go back there, you message them and they go, hey, I'm coming back for a couple of months, to, uh, you know, so-and-so. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, you definitely got a gig here. So that's it's not that difficult to get the gigs. As I say, they're not, like, uh, amazingly well-paid, but uh, it's just that thing of doing stuff. And then, of course, you get to meet people there, and you could probably talk to people, and they'll say, yeah, well, I want some guitar lessons, or I know somebody that wants some guitar lessons. So you so you're networking, you're putting yourself in, in the shop window. And as far as getting students, I, I do it quite organically at the moment. Uh, so I just like, you know, on Facebook, mainly on Facebook, you know, I just I'll go onto the guitar groups and just add some people or send them a message. Obviously, having the diamond head thing is great because I can sort of show. I have this really cool video of me doing a guitar solo on the streets of gold, which is one of my sort of proudest sort of guitar moments that was actually captured because we recorded a DVD at the uh, the new wave of British heavy metal 25th anniversary of all back in 2005. And on that DVD, I uh, like Brian Tatler, the diamond head guitarist. He's the, the, the lead guitarist, really. I was mainly rhythm guitarist, but uh, he did let me do two or three solos. And uh, so, yeah, I did this solo on Streets of Gold. So I, I'll just send people like uh, the link, the YouTube link to that solo and just say, hey, how's it going? So, um, you know, what, what guitar are you playing? And uh, how's, how's, your, how's your journey going so far? Something like that. And then I'll just finish, you know, Rob Mills, former Diamondhead guitarist. And I don't know, I, you know, hopefully that's sort of like, you know, gets through to some people and they go, oh. some people don't even believe like uh, they think it's like a, you know, with with how many sort of scams are online these days, they think like yeah. it's, hey, why why are you sending me this? And you're not the you're not the real guitarist, you know. Uh, so yeah, that's quite funny when that happens. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've got some students through like that, uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, obviously, you can do like Facebook advertising and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot there's a lot that goes into that, as you as you know yourself. You're, you're the master of that, so I've heard. Uh, you've got like, I mean, when, when you actually go into the, uh, the business, Facebook business manager or the ads manager or whatever it is on, on your laptop, it's like, well, it's a whole different world. And uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm personally cut out for that. So I, I just stick with it organic so far. And uh, I mean, 
I'd like to, I guess, in the future, maybe get my head more into that and try and try and make it work. But I haven't uh, got that far down the track with it with the ads managing yet. Yeah, and the Facebook ads, you know, I think they're absolutely fantastic. But if you don't know what you're doing, it's a great way to blow a lot of money and yeah. <laughs> you know makes makes a lot of money for Facebook, but doesn't necessarily translate to results for you. But if you can get great organic marketing and students and things like that, and then we can figure out how to capture that lightning and amplify it with ads, then that's that's essentially really good. And all my best ads yeah. have been stuff, things that have worked well before I put money behind it. I figured out something that worked and then just use the ad to either increase the frequency at which people were seeing mm-hmm. it or to um, to make sure more people in a specific area were seeing it. And again, uh, if you've got an ad, doesn't matter how good your ad is, if everyone in America is set to see that ad and you've put a hundred bucks on it, then it's only going to get seen once by you know a thousand people and you'd be lucky to get one person to take action from that. And I think a lot of people underestimate how much you have to spend, but also, and this is giving away a few ad secrets is if you set up your student acquisition properly, then every student that signs up should hypothetically pay for the cost of spending on your ads and everything. And that's something I definitely uh-huh. go into with with my courses to say, hey, if your student, when they come up, for example, if you spend $100 on, on the ads, but every student you sign up is worth 220 then you've got $120 in your pocket. And if you had a like a, a token machine or a poker machine where you're you put a dollar in, a dollar twenty came out, or two dollars twenty come out. You just keep on grabbing that and feeding it in that positive feedback loop. So, when you think about ads that way, you can't really lose. But you need to have that yeah. first off winning ad in the beginning to be able to generate that uh that income. But I know we're getting near the edge, end of our time here. So, guys, if you're listening, you need help with Facebook ads. Definitely hit me up. I can help you out with that. But Rob, you got your students from anywhere around the world. So, what's your approach to teaching students and helping them? Because I understand. You're one of the teachers who doesn't just say, this is my way and how I do things. You actually uh, get to know the student, what they need and enjoy, and, and you make it a little bit more personalized to them. That's my understanding of your approach. Something along those lines? Yeah, for sure. But it's like um, I always start off by saying that I, I like to think that I teach uh, the cornerstones of what I believe to be good musicianship. So uh, technique, theory, improvisation, rhythm, and what's the other one? Uh, ear training. You know, all those five things cover a lot for me. And I think, uh, yes, uh, you, obviously, you, each student is different. You know, I've got like kids that are eight years old, or you know, adults that can only sort of practice like thirty minutes a day for the mo- at, at most. Uh, but I try to say to them, you know, well, have a practice routine, have a regimen, and I'll say like, you know, your basic practice routine. That everyone should I think everyone should follow is what I used to do is like say if you're practicing for an hour then you split that up into four segments you know you do 15 minute warm-up 15 minute on scales 15 minute on chords uh you know that loosely sort of planned uh obviously that's gonna uh evolve over time and then the last 15 minutes you go well you know I've, I've done the hard work and now it's time to kick back and either learn a, a riff that you want to learn, a new riff or a new song, or put some backing tracks on and do some improvisation. You know, as I say, that's going to involve, isn't it? That's going to get more and more intricate the, the further you go because the more you learn, the more you want to learn, and the more you can do and the more confident you get. Then you start like dividing some of those sections up or adding more sections. If you, you could be practicing for two hours and 
and doing so like six different subject fields or whatever and try and get organized, like keep a, a folder with subject dividers that and make notes and put your, you know, different notes into each of those sections. So it feels like, you know, you, you're going along in the right direction instead of just sort of like aimlessly practicing and not really practicing anything, just noodling. And you're not, you're not going to get anywhere with that sort of like approach. Yeah. So try and get it like regimented, but have fun at the same time. Right. You know, uh, I always think that like people that are learning should have uh, what's the reason that you're doing it? What's going to make you practice every day and, and get through those those times where you don't necessarily feel like that you you are improving? You're always improving. Every time you play a note, you're improving. So, but have like have guitar heroes. That's you know that's one thing. As I said, as you heard when I spoke earlier, Slash was my guitar hero initially. And I had people like Joe Chetrian and Steve Vai that I looked up to. That you just go, wow, these guys are amazing. And like, if I can be as half as good as those guys, then you know, I'm going to be half decent, right? But you still want to try and get be as good as them. But you know, uh, sometimes you've got to admit that some of those guys are just uh, <laughs> they're way up there. If you have your heroes, though, that's going to keep you focused, isn't it? It's going to be like, yeah, that's that's where I'm. That's why I'm doing this, and you can see maybe a career path and stuff like that that's going to keep you going. As I say, one of the strongest things for me was thinking I don't want to do a regular nine-to-five shitty job. I want to be in a band and doing something that I love, you know, doing something that actually makes me feel good and not like some dead-end job or something like that. So that's another, you know, if you're sort of like younger and you've got your career focus, you can think of it like that. But, yeah, I was going to say something else. It's gone now. <laughs> yeah, I think they're all really, really important things inspiring students to have a favorite player to check out other bands and i think that's something that i i'm always taken aback by is me and my friends all we did was talk about who is the best guitar player and hey check this out whereas now i get students so like who's your favorite guitar player and they're like i don't have one i'm like name me your favorite guitar player or name me a guitar player and they're like oh, i don't really know i, I like cold play <laughs> not not really yeah. cold play or anything like that but yeah um yeah it's Going back to what we said earlier, when it comes down to those people who are on fire and they they know they want to be guitar players, I'm exploring this theory, this concept of you know the identity. If you identify as a guitar player, you do certain things like read guitar magazines or watch YouTube videos about guitar players or listen to guitar music or argue with other guitar players online about who's the best guitar player, things like that, as opposed to just someone who's trying out a hobby or you know looking to fill a void in their life and this is what they're going to do for the next three months. So. That's just something I'm stewing over, but it, it's sort of falling right into you know, what you're saying with favorite guitar players and, and these are the things that guitar players do. Yeah, for sure. You've got to have your head in the game. Uh, like you say, don't be like uh, half, half-assed half and go, oh, yeah, like you said about Coldplay or whatever. It's, it could be I've, ha- I've had exactly the same thing. You know, like, uh, who's your favorite guitar player? Or what's your favorite like guitar riff? Oh, yeah, I haven't really got one. I've just been playing on my... Uh, my game boy all day or something or i've been playing on the xbox and that's that's the, that's the trouble nowadays as well there's so many distractions for, for for people for kids and that like they're learning it's like you know they're playing like they're playing on the, the xbox and it's like you just spent four hours playing on xbox you could have been practicing for those four hours and you know what it's gonna, <laughs> you're gonna have you've got something you've got a, pro, a productive you know result because of it like rather than just mindlessly playing on a yeah, so that 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 really gets my uh, goat. And one other thing that gets my goat is something you mentioned about like arguing about who's the best guitar player. Is people ragging on Jimmy Page, man? Like I'm like, hold on a sec. 
Hold on a sec. You're saying Jimmy Page is a shit guitarist. Have you sold 350 million albums? I don't think so. So, and the other thing is Jimmy Page wasn't just a guitarist. He was, a, you know, a composer, a band leader, a producer. He did like most of that stuff amazingly well. You know, you listen to a song like Cashmere uh, and tell me that Jimmy Page is, uh, you know, uh, not very good. I don't know. I don't, I don't get that. So I know he wasn't like, you know, the most technically sort of like, uh, you know, like precise and everything like that. People maybe point to that his solo on uh, Heartbreaker, don't they? And go, yeah, listen to it. It sounds like a, you know, a bit messy and stuff like that. This guy's a feel yeah. player, man. You got to feel it. Yeah, I think you can, you know, if if you're a bedroom guitar player and you can confidently play John Petrucci's solos, then you can say, yeah, I'm technically more proficient at my instrument at than Jimmy Page or a handful of other people. But at the same time, if it wasn't for Jimmy Page influencing host of your other favourite guitar players that led to you being as good as John Petrucci, then none of that would have eventuated. So it's it's kind of like saying, oh, yeah, Usain Bolt is better than whoever the 19... 19- 20s, you know, Olympics gold medalist was. It's just musicianship has evolved, guitar playing has evolved. You got to yeah. stand on the shoulders of those people and launch from the the, the the pad that they built for you. So, yeah, I think everyone, you know, it's an online world. Everyone, what does Mike Tyson say about all these computer interactions got you too used to not getting punched in the face or, or anything like that? <laughs> so it's just a whole bunch of people talking, you know, shit, shit essentially. But um, I think most normal people or rational people will, um, you know, concede, oh, yeah, maybe Jimi Hendrix isn't good, as good in comparison to an Eddie and then eventually a Malmsteen and then and then a, a Petrucci and the, the bar keeps on getting lifted. But, again, you go, for the time, he was, you know, a 9 out of 10 for rock guitar playing back in the late 60s, early 70s. And now, by comparison, he might only be a 5 out of 10 but you wouldn't compare a boxer in their sixties to whoever the you know the talented guy in their forties is now, yeah. or, or anything like that. It's just it's not an apples to apples comparison. But that's the internet, and that's that's what we love doing, arguing over who is our favorite. Uh, yeah, uh, well, I mean, just one other thing that that stuck in my mind as well that Steve Vice said when he was talking about Jimmy Page. He said, like he said, he said you listen to like some of the riffs that Jimmy Page like wrote, and you just go, well, that's it. I, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to write anything. You know, half as good as that in term in terms of a, like a catchy riff, you know, like a whole lot of love, heartbreaker, all those kind of riffs. So that's the other thing, isn't it? It's like people are looking at it like and going, yeah, well, technically, you know, like you say, jump into juicy, you get all these cleanups. Paul Gilbert, I love Paul Gilbert. He's an amazingly fast picker and he can hear every single note, even though he's going a million miles an hour. But, you know, can he write an amazing song that's that like that is timeless? Like, you know, Stairway to Heaven, uh, Kashmir, you know, all, all these classics that Led Zeppelin wrote that will just like, that will stand the test of time forever. Uh, and as I say, that's the funniest thing is when they come on the computer and go, Jimmy Page is shit. I'm like, I, I have to comment and go, oh yeah, how many of those 350 million uh, albums did you sell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in 300 years or oh, 300 years from now, there's going to be Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, ACDC. Michael Jackson, yep. Justin Bieber, Lady Gaga, they're probably going to be up there as well. But you, String Slayer 666, uh, no one's going to know who you are. <laughs> so yeah. shut up. Um, but, yeah, to what you said, I remember reading an article with the guys from Slipknot. Now, I don't listen to Slipknot that much, but I know they're all technically proficient. But someone's like, oh, what's it like to be 
better than Kurt Cobain. Does it annoy you that, you know, he got voted as one of the greatest guitar players all time? He goes, yeah, well, if I had the choice between my current guitar skills and being known as the guy that wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit, I'd probably pick being the guy that wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit <laughs> any day of the, any day of the yeah. week. So, yeah, I think um, internet shenanigans aside, when everyone calms down and actually, you know, thinks through things rationally in a face-to-face conversation rather than a, an online forum from the safety of their armchairs, we get a, a very different outcome. But Rob, we are near the end of our time here today. So if our listeners want to hit you up for a guitar lesson or want some more advice on building their own digital nomad style, getting gigs, everything you've talked about today, more structured practice sessions, I think you're a wealth of knowledge on a number of different topics. Where can our listeners hit you up? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, i got a web- Website which is uh, rockstarguitarschool.co.uk. I, I got my. I'm on YouTube as uh, Diamond Guitarist, and my 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 personal Facebook page really is probably one of the other best ways. And I do post like videos and stuff on there from time to time anyway. And that's the other thing that I was going to mention is like you know about getting more students is you know yeah you've got to you've got to be putting content and your little guitar lessons so people can see and then and they just put your website on the end of it and stuff like that. But yeah, so on my personal Facebook page, I don't know whether you can, maybe I can send you a link. But I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with, with you anyway on Facebook. So if people are friends with you on Facebook, maybe they can just like go on the friends section and just look up Rob Mills and uh, should be there. You should be able to find me easily enough, I would have thought. Yeah, that'll be easy. And wherever our guys are listening from, whether it's Spotify or, or YouTube or uh, Apple Podcasts, we'll have the links that you've mentioned in the show notes. So as long as you're not driving, you can obviously check where the show notes are and you can hit Rob up. So Rob, what's one last piece of wisdom that you can share with our listeners before we wrap it up today? Well, just um, it's the old uh, cliche, but eat, you know, if you want to be a great guitarist, eat, sleep and breathe it and all that. And it's like just immerse yourself in it because uh, – that's the only way is to really sort of like go the whole hog and um, just just live it, yeah, to see if you can get to that point in your practice where you're doing like a bit of woodshedding. Because if you go through that that's that situation where you are practicing for like hours and hours upon hours a day, uh, don't they say like you need to practice for like 10,000 hours or something like that to be good at anything? Well, yeah, you've got you've to make up those hours somehow. Uh, so yeah, really get stuck in. As far as the teaching, you know, uh, definitely, if you're thinking about it, the digital nomad for me is the way because you can you can do something called geo arbitrage, which is where that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm I'm, I'm living in these cheap countries, but I'm I'm sort of charging you know uh, uh, musicians union rate prices, uh, so like uh, like fifty sixty dollars an hour. Uh, I'm bringing that money into uh, these cheap countries and sort of living like a king. <laughs> living like a king, that sounds great. So, Rob, on behalf of our listeners here at Top Music, thank you so much for coming online today and sharing your amazing story from humble beginnings, getting your first guitar for Christmas, right up to playing Varken Festival, which is, you know, if you ask any sort of aspiring heavy metal guitar player, you know, is there a, a Woodstock for metal guitar players? That, of course, is... Uh, the Varken Festival there, right up to the success you're having in your teaching business here. So, Rob, thanks so much for coming on. And to our listeners, we will see you guys in the next exciting episode of the Top Music Guitar Teaching Podcast. See you next time, guys. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Mike.
Hey there, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Top Music Guitar Teaching Podcast. If you have any questions about anything we discussed on the podcast, reach out to me at michael at topmusic.co via email. If you want a guest on the show because you're doing some wonderful things in the teaching space, I would love to hear from you. Or if you've got any suggestions for guests or topics we can discuss, as always, you know where to find me. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is our Top Music Guitar Teaching membership. We have over a thousand members of Top Music, and that is a huge community of people that you can connect with online, share wonderful teaching tips, and of course, network with. We've also got over 20 courses for music teachers, 12 special ones for guitar on every topic imaginable from group teaching, private teaching, how to find more students, how to build websites, everything you could possibly want to need to know about teaching, building a business and getting more students is covered. And you get access to all of this for $49, probably less than what you charge for a one hour private lesson every single month. So don't miss out on this awesome opportunity. Visit our website, www.topmusicguitar.com and join us in the membership. Thank you so much and we'll see you next week.